Welcome everyone to Narrative Dissonance here on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter. I'm Juliet. <laughs> uh, you are watching us. I don't actually know if you're watching us on our main channel. Uh, we were we were just banned for a week. So you're either watching us probably on our homepage, which is where you should be at unsafespace.com, or if you found the ghost channel on YouTube, you could be watching us there, or on, on Odyssey or U or uh Utreon or Rumble. And we'll put this back on our main channel as soon as we're allowed to. But we, the stream actually might be working on the main channel. We're not totally sure. Um, anyway, welcome, wherever you're from. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore unsafe space. And don't forget to please support the show at unsafespace.com. Um, quick note on book club. Because of, because of our recent Twitter or our YouTube ban, we were going to have book club on sunday the 25th mm -hmm. we've moved it out a week to october 2nd so it's the following sunday so you have an extra week to read the satanic verses by salman rushdie uh but we're not going to move the slaughterhouse five book club which is still october 30th so get to reading if you're if you're interested <laughs> in any one of those things we should say we were banned we just so this morning i before we bring our guests on i just have to vent a little bit julia i my car died this morning <laughs> while I was out, like radiator. I don't know if it's a radiator oh, no. crack. Like I thought maybe oh. it was just a hose and I plugged it in the hose. Like I fixed a hose and I thought it was fine, but I don't think it is. Anyway, so I'm stranded this morning. I limped to the service station and then I get an email from YouTube that says you have a strike for content that's a, literally a year old. Uh, I, a show a year ago, they decided to strike because I used an analogy about drinking wine to talk about the VAX, uh, which I'm not supposed to. And like, they didn't like the wine analogy. And um, and by the way, last Monday, I forgot to say, last Monday we are, um, it was our two year anniversary <laughs> of a warning that we got from YouTube, um, which we thought was unfair and we appealed and they have, it's been over two years now. <laughs> they have never replied to the appeal. It's still it's still under review, and while you have a warning, it means anything that happens after that becomes a strike, not a warning. So uh, this is how they get you, one of the many ways they get you. Um, and Beverly's saying we are not streaming on the main channel, which doesn't surprise me. So you should be watching on the secondary channel. The chat on the main channel is still working, though. So I guess <laughs> if you wanted to, you could be chatting on the main channel and watching on the secondary channel, but I have no idea. Why? Uh, you would do that. Anyway, that's all the housekeeping out of the way. Let's, let's, get, let's get going on, on this week's panel for Narrative Dissonance, which is a show in which we question the mainstream, question the mainstream narrative, and I learn how to talk. Uh, so this week we have two guests. Please first welcome James Pugh. James is an independent writer, father, and entrepreneur. His work can be found on Substack at Woke Watch Canada. And the turn, he's a strong advocate for liberalism and the cherished Western freedoms associated with truth seeking. You can follow truth seeking. You can follow him on Twitter at not woke thinker. James, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. It's an interesting day that you uh, <laughs> <laughs> we scheduled you. We got a lot going on. Um, <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But welcome. And our second panelist today is Elliot Resnick. Elliot is the former chief editor of the Jewish Press and host of a new pod podcast called The Elliot Resnick Show. 
He holds a PhD in Jewish history and has authored or edited five books, including most recently Movers and Shakers, Volume 3, on American glory, Jewish destiny, rare integrity, and more. You can follow him on Twitter at Resnick Elliott, and we'll put links to all that stuff below. Welcome, Elliot. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Well, thank you for joining. Um, well, I guess let's let's kick it off with the question. We always kick the show off with the same questions, and uh, maybe we'll pick on Elliot first, just just for no reason. Uh, Elliot, what's the most important story about which the mainstream media has misled people the past week? What do you think? Well, they continue to mislead on the January 6th story. Every time they report on that story, they'll say there's an effort to overturn the last election. Because the last election, the results were clear, and anyone who has questions is just obviously trying to overturn a fair and free election. Well, you're assuming an issue which is at, at question. We're not sure if it's – people who are asking questions are not sure if it's clear, if it was he actually won. They're asking questions. Maybe he didn't. He has some irregularities. Let's look into it. And instead of saying these people are just asking questions, no, they're already denying an established fact. Somehow it's an established fact. I don't know how it's an established fact, but somehow it's an established fact Divided um, one, 100%, you know, fair and square. It reminds me actually when people talk about religion sometimes. I'm an Orthodox Jew, so they'll write, you know, these like elitist, liberals, very sophisticated professors at university. We all know that man invented God instead of God invented man. Oh, really? We all know that. It's an established fact. You know, we've, we've gone through all the events and it's out clear that God was just made up by human beings. I would, I would appreciate a teeny bit of humility. So, um, and the latest, you know, version of that was um, this past week. I think they issued 40 subpoenas to various people associated with Trump. So I think with Giuliani and Dan Scavino and um, ooh, the last one just slipped my mind for a second. But um, and they are saying they want to have fake electors to overturn the election. This was um, they weren't fake electors to overturn the election. It was we think maybe the election was won on our side, and if we could prove our point. These are alternate electors we, we could send in the event that we actually have proven our case, which is not a very radical thing to do, but they make it into a radical thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, the, the election one's an interesting one because I, some, so I, we do know some people, uh, Juliet actually knows Elle very well, Elle's been on the show a lot. We know some people who, who spent an inordinate amount of time going down the, the rabbit hole of like, what's going on in this county and what happened here and what are the potential issues. But, you know, to me, it's enough as a, as a lay person to step back and go, well, I seem to not be able to ask any questions. Uh, that's a problem <laughs> because when I can't ask questions, that doesn't make me trust your position very well. Yes, exactly. It only makes you more suspicious. And that's why I always say there was at least one crime committed on election night. Either they stole the election or they knew how terrible it would look to stop counting the votes at midnight and then start counting them again in the morning and have Biden all of a sudden winning. They knew it would look terrible, and they just didn't care. They didn't care what people would think. They didn't care that 70% of Republicans don't trust them, and I think 20% of independents and even 10% of Democrats. A normal country, if you actually cared about the country, you would say, look, we won, but we realize you have all sorts of questions. We're going to spend some time making it very clear to you and answering each one of your questions so that you have confidence. Of course, you always have crackpots. You'll never have 100%. But you could get most people on board if you take the questions seriously and give them serious, patient answers. If you ignore them, you get January 6th. That's what happens. Uh-huh. January 6th would never have happened if they had treated those questions with respect. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it wasn't that long. I mean, yes, a lot of 
the public has short memories, but it wasn't that long ago that uh, uh, we can all recall the 2016 election. We can all recall Hillary Clinton saying it was stolen from her and the election is, you know, like there's lots of Democrats questioning the integrity of the elections, but that was four whole years prior. So it doesn't count anymore. No, exactly. Exactly. And I think Tucker Carlson always says that the left accuses the right of what it would do instead. I used to always think that it's not, not really true, but I'm, I'm becoming convinced more and more that it is true. Like, they keep on saying it was an insurrection. Well, it's, it's a joke of an accusation. But it finally occurred to me, if it happened to them, they actually would try an insurrection, I think. Mm-hmm. I really do think they would try it. So they were always projecting on us what they would do if they were in the same situation. Well, look at, I mean, yeah, look at what they did when they felt the need to riot in the summer of 20, was it 2020? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the George Floyd stuff, right? Like, they declared autonomous zones and cities. They looted and burned. I mean, they, they were actually a violent mob. So it's not uh, it's not out of the question to say, well, maybe they're just projecting because that seems to be the M.O. Right. And I think the people there on January 6th were all very well aware of what the left had done all, this, all summer. And I always say you know, people compare the two. They're not comparable at all. Um, when the left rioted, they were upset about some police incident in Minnesota, so therefore they're looting a sneaker store in Manhattan. What's the connection? On January 6th, there were people who were upset at the politicians, and they raided the building where the politicians were in to scream at the politicians. There was no wanton destruction. There were paintings in the Capitol building, statues, not one of them was touched. The only destruction that was caused was really people who wanted to get inside. They had to break something to get inside. So it was like, of course, kind of like functional violence. It was not wanton violence. And, of course, everyone there that day also knew exactly what the left had done all summer. It was kind of like, well, this is fair game. If we're really upset, we know the rules now. You could, you know, trespass and do all sorts of things if you don't like what's going on. Everyone there knew what had just happened that summer. And I always think, actually, the right played that day so completely wrong. The conservatives should have played that day the same way the leftist politicians played the summer. Most leftist politicians, or very few, justified those riots outright. What did they say, though? They said, look, we might not be for violence, but you know what? There's so much police racism going on and so much discrimination. We understand if people get so upset that, they, that they're doing what they're doing. Because the right wing should have said exactly what the left wing did. They should have said, look, you know, I, I'm probably not for breaking into a building, but we have so many questions about the election. And we've been begging you for answers for two months. We understand why this whole crowd snapped. And, if we, and we'll speak out and we'll tell them to come out of the building. But you have to first give us an audit because we're, we've been begging you for answers. You're not giving us any answers. As soon as you start giving us some answers, we'll tell them to leave the building. But they played it all wrong. They can, the right condemned the, the grassroots on the ground just as harshly as the left did. And I think it was such a stupid idea. Anything like that happened on January 6th, like Sri Lanka, there's no point to it. The point is to create chaos. And the point is that your politicians use your chaos to advance the agenda. That's the point. And the right wing completely misplayed it. And so stupidly. I was, I was shocked, actually, when I started reading that night, all the conservatives who were so... Who were, throwing all those people under the bus. And again, what did they do already? They went into a building, big deal. I think it was, honestly, it was underreaction, not an overreaction as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I always think about that picture from inside the Capitol on January 6th, where people are walking through like the statue gallery and they're in between the, the velvet ropes. <laughs> like they didn't even walk outside of the path they were supposed to be in. Um, it's just it's uh, it's hard to believe they were able to shape that whole thing so quickly. And then anyone who questions it 
is an insurrectionist now. Like you can't even try to point out that the doors were open from the inside or any of that stuff without, you know, you're just instantly a domestic terrorist, I guess. Right. I mean, I guess to be fair to them, I think there were multiple break-ins and one of them, the doors were open. The other one was not, I think it was at least two or three. Um, so it wasn't, the doors weren't open for everybody, but certainly mm -hmm. for a huge portion of the crowd, it was open. And yeah, well, they'll play this for as long as they can. They get, you know, right. two years, four years, five, who knows? They'll play this forever because it's a good talking point for them. And the right wing never even really pushed back. I mean, I think Matt Gates and one or two other people pushed back a little bit in the beginning. But otherwise, they basically said, yes, we're, we're against violence. We're against violence when the left does it in the summer, and we're against violence today. But again, they're not at all comparable. It's not even close. I mean, right. I mean how many deaths were, you know, the left caused want, wanton destruction, wanton deaths, and over nothing also, over a lie. You know, it's funny. I think CNN said that, said that once. I think it was Dan, Dan Lemon who said that. He said, well, the difference is that the leftist violence was based on truth, and the right wing violence was based on a lie. It's actually the exact opposite. I mean, the amount of racism against blacks is so, so well, not, non-existent as far as I can tell. I mean, if anything, I think the studies have shown that black, that policemen are less likely to shoot at a black than they are at a white. And, and presumably because they know all the, about all these stories that have come out and they don't really want to ruin their career and they don't really want to be on YouTube, you know, going viral. So they actually, are, I think, are less likely to shoot at blacks than they are at whites. So that whole thing was a lie from top to bottom. Um, as opposed to January 6th, where there at least were legitimate questions. Maybe the question, you know, maybe... It was fair and square at the end of the day, but it's certainly a tremendous amount of fair questions to ask, not crackpot questions. But, um, yeah. I guess it doesn't get as much play on CNN if, if you call it, you know, January 6th, the trespassing. <laughs> exactly. I, I think what Tucker has, has started calling it the election, uh, election justice protest. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's caught on or not. James, have you been paying attention to uh, the either the January sixth? Well, I mean, right now, I think it's there's the there's the invest the investigation. I'll put in quotes. There was the uh, committee, uh, but then there's been a lot of people still languishing in jail. Yeah, I have noticed that, and uh, the parallel that I that I look at is the same one that you guys have drawn, where you where you you sort of pair, compare the uh, Black Lives Matter post George Floyd protests with which were massive property destruction over over months over many cities compared to this one isolated event at the capitol which okay they i guess they broke the law they uh, i I, th I think it's maybe a little more serious than just entering a building i think they, they did freak freak out the people the, the the politicians and i could see why they would be alarmed by it but still the fact that those people are in jail still uh, the way the media has exaggerated it we we have a parallel in canada to um, the George Floyd thing. And it resulted in the same type of destruction based on a lie or an exaggeration. And that's with our unmarked grave story. Uh, that's, our, that's our George Floyd moment. And in the wake of that, a bunch of churches were burned down and, uh, and you know, all kinds of like anti-Catholic hate uh, based on a, a very false narrative that's exaggerated and made up in some cases. <laughs> Well, let's get to that story then, because I know uh, I know it was something that you wanted to talk about as an example of sure. how the mainstream media is misleading us. I think a lot of people in the U.S. I mean, we've talked about some of the uh, the schools and the Pope's apology a little bit here. Uh, Barbara Kay was on and talked about that a little bit, but I think a lot of our audience, either in the U.S. or internationally, is not super aware of what you're talking about. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think everyone remembers that in uh, it was a year, pretty much almost to the date after uh, George Floyd uh, was killed by the police, we had a discovery of unmarked graves in Kamloops, BC. Um, <laughs> the media said they were unmarked graves. The media said that it was a mass grave of murdered children. And this is the sensational headline that sort of circulated around the globe. Um, but really what those what that was based on was ground penetrating radar readings uh, that we just would call soil disturbances. It's not the technology is not capable of um, verifying if these are bodies or graves or, or anything, let alone if they're clandestine graves, which is the accusation. So um, Barbara Kay actually is part of the same research group. There's about 20 academics that have been researching the details of this for over, for a couple of years now, I believe. Um, a lot of them are retired academics who won't get in trouble, so they can speak out against these things and they can challenge some of the claims and 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 do the research. But we we've done they've been doing things like looking through the school records of the kids that went to these schools, and we're just not able to verify. Like so there's a lot of claims around the residential schools that thousands of kids were, went murdered and were went missing or were murdered, and we we can't find it. There's no police records of any parents ever um, reporting a kid gone missing or murdered from a school and, and no, no excavations have taken place in any of these graves. So nothing has been verified, but the story just keeps spinning out of control. Just the last couple of days, we've had a, um, I don't know what you call it. It's again, they call it, it's like, I guess it's the inaugural national gathering of, of unmarked grave. Uh, over 300 indigenous activist leaders all got together and this is going to be, taking place all across the country ta at taxpayer expense. And they're just, they're just whipping this story up even more and more. And um, there's just not a lot of uh, truth to it. And uh, because we're sort of plugged into this network of research is the newest thing that's been discovered is there's a, an anonymous um, architectural consultant who has had access to site survey data. So kind of like site survey documents of, of that Kamloops apple orchard. And what we found out was in the 1920s and 1930s, there was cons uh, extensive excavation and construction that took place in the exact spot where the unmarked graves are said to be. And what they installed down there was drainage tile. It's a septic field. So there's over 2,000 linear feet. We have a, a report and everything. There's over 2,000 linear feet of uh, septic drainage tench, trench that was dug there. And shallow, very, very shallowly placed, which would be uh, consistent with the signature of a shallow grave, is drainage tile. So that's a plausible story, that that's what the ground penetrating radar is picking up. It's, it's that, that leftover construction and those septic tile, not the ghost stories that were told by former residential school students. Um, that, that there was kids murdered and buried there. And the stories are very implausible. They, they say things like that priests woke up six-year-olds six in the middle of the night and had them dig the graves. But have you ever seen a six-year-old try to manipulate a shovel, let alone actually <laughs> dig a hole? Like a 10-year-old can't even really dig a hole with a shovel. So a lot of these stories are very implausible. Uh, stories of uh, priests throwing babies in furnaces and clandestine graves. And then, uh, uh, sorry, just to back up for a second, after the initial Can Bloops discovery, there were a bunch of other announcements of other graves near residential schools, former residential schools. All of those are former Catholic cemeteries and they're known. The media just says what they want anyway. We, we have, a, there's a famous picture of our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, kneeling at one of those graves with a teddy bear, a photo op. 
But this was at a known Catholic cemetery and Justin Trudeau definitely knew that and so did his people. But they virtue signal and they they whip up the narrative anyway because it's for political expediency for whatever reasons. But yeah, it's a vastly corrupt um, thing going on in Canada that we call the Aboriginal industry that is made up of the activists that are trying to extract the maximum amount of taxpayer money for all kinds of things, everything from land claims to past wrongs to the, re the you know the, the intergenerational trauma from residential schools to more search and, and discovery of unmarked graves. It's hundreds of millions of dollars is being funneled for these reasons. And if we would just dig up, do one excavation in the Kamloops thing, we'd be able to verify that it's that all of these stories are either true or false, but most likely false. Um, and maybe the most shocking thing is that it's. Um, the Indian band has taken over the, the site of the, of the apple orchard and they've, they're claiming that there's dead, murdered children down there. And our police force, uh, I guess you guys would be the FBI, but with us, it's the RCMP. They're not involved. So we're asking why did the RCMP not make it a crime scene, cordon off that area, take over, have forensics in there, do an excavation, find out what's going on. But for some reason that's not happening. So we're, we're sort of, trying to get to the bottom of that, among other things. I, one thing that strikes me as weird, I was reading your article, uh, I think it was one of yours on this. Um, yeah, it is, in your, your op-ed in True North. And um, you cite, so you cite a quote from the Standing Committee on Indigenous and Northern Affairs, and they say, they, they use a particular number discovery of the remains of 215 indigenous children. That, mm. I mean, as someone who's just kind of paying to, attention to the, you know, the story on the sidelines and not, not being a researcher, that seems oddly specific. I look at that and I go, well, it's not that they just saw some soil disturbances. They, they must have bodies. They counted them. What's going on right. with that? Well, they think that the ground penetrating radar readings has, has detected 215 discrete um, burial burials, so they can they they think that they can interpret, and sometimes you can from ground penetrating radar. That's what you're looking for. You can you can the readings. You can sort of get a sense that there's some sort of a disturbance here, and you can get things that look like the signature of a shallow grave or a grave. So they they think that that's what they're detecting. But what what I was saying about the uh, drainage tile, it's the same thing. It's like these short little uh, trenches that are all dug that are very similar to um, how a, a grave would be. And what's what's here's a, another piece of information I didn't tell you. In the report, when we found out about the septic tile, they're oriented in an east-west position, which would be consistent with the burial pattern for an indigenous grave. Um, so that's another reason maybe the GPR specialist, the archeologist, um, thought that maybe this is interpreted as a grave because of the east-west orientation. But that's actually how the drainage tent trenches were dug and how the tile was installed. So we really should, it really should be dug up because it's a huge story and it's kind of damaged the reputation of Canada sort of globally. And we would just like with a, with a, a crew of four men and some shovels, we could figure it out in an afternoon, but it's so far not happened. So let me, let me challenge something then i i you're saying that this is a little bit of uh i guess rent seeking kind of uh kind of thing and you know and 
I think that there's something deeper here, and I actually think it connects to something that Elliot talks about sometimes, which is like, I think there's, I think there's a deeper issue here, and that issue is not to make money necessarily. I mean, certainly some of the actors want to get some money, um, but I think this is really about just demonizing Western civilization. It's it's about anything that makes anything that even even if it's not actually fundamental to Western civilization, if it's perceived as fundamental, it must be demonized. And that goes for uh, the January 6th stuff. It goes for, uh, you know, some of the trans <laughs> activism, which maybe we'll get into. And it goes for this indigenous population. This, it's this idea that um, we're so evil. We're such an evil, but we were, and I'm putting we in quotes because we were all uh, not born. Uh, we're such a, it's such an evil colonialist empire that did all these uniquely evil things that now uh, people who share the skin color need to make up for it. Yeah, you're you're uh, talking about the sort of the postmodern turn. That's how I refer to it. Others have said that too, but that's sort of that turn into postmodern forms of knowledge production. Sort of began in the '60s in academia. And um, I like the way um, my friend, Professor Whittison, describes it, because when Derrida and Foucault, Foucault and all those sort of postmodern writers first appeared in academia, they coexisted with other schools of thought and everybody sort of seemed to get along. But it has, assert, it has, it has asserted itself as identity politics and it has taken on a totalitarian character. So this is why... Francis, for example, um, she's a was a professor at uh, MRU, Mount Royal University, which is a crazy woke university that's obsessed with the indigenization, which is sort of the opposite of decolonization. Decolonization is the sort of removal of what you're talking about, the artifacts of Western civilization. But indigenization is the putting in of things, is putting in artifacts of um, indigenous ways of knowing, traditional knowledge, things things like that. So that's going on at MRU, and uh, Professor Whittison is an Indigenous scholar who's critical of, she's, she is the one that sort of came up with that, or I learned the term rent-seeking from, and I learned all about the Aboriginal industry from her. And she's also questions the assertions of activists on campus. So she's been pushed out, cancelled. Her arbitration is coming up. I'm sort of, I write about her a lot, kind of advocating for, for her. But that's that's sort of the situation in Canada and what, what you're talking about, this war on the West. Douglas Murray writes really eloquently about it. But um, it, it is sort of a postmodern thing. It's a it's a, a postmodern epistemology asserting itself in a totalitarian way, not allowing for other schools of thought. And that's dangerous because the other schools of thought are the ones that are objective and involve empirically verifiable means of generating knowledge. Materialism, you know, things that are uh, real objective truth and everything to do with postmodern knowledge production is all that whole world where people are talking about lived experience or your truth and my truth and everyone's got their own truth. But that's interesting, but that can't be what takes over knowledge production in the West. And that is exactly what's happening and very dangerous. Um, imagine like construction workers reading off a building plan and everyone in having their own truth about it. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like this this is not going to um, uphold society for very long. And I think that's the point. They are trying to destroy everything. There is no plan for what to replace it with. 
And the thing that they say over and over again is disrupt and dismantle and burn it all down and tear it all down. So, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, it's almost worse than pure postmodernism because I think if you are purely a postmodernist, you wouldn't it because it's it's also mixed with the critical theorists. Yes. So uh, it's like a pure postmodernist w- would not necessarily favor one narrative over another, but um, it's combined with this favoritism towards narratives that are explicitly irrational and nihilist. Yes. Political scientist David Henry described, um, David Harvey, sorry, I love his definition. He described uh, critical theory as Americanized postmodernism. And that's that's kind of a cool link because a lot of people really reject that there's any relationship between postmodernism and critical theory. But there there is, there is. Um, and neo-Marxism is too, that's kind of in there too, which is a... Uh, um, whole nother conversation because it really is at odds with classical Marxism. Um, because I, I, I think, think and write a lot about activism, activists. I think that's where we're at with wokeism and where we're at with this attack on the West. It's coming from the world of activists and activism. Um, I'm sort of losing my train of thought here. Uh, yeah, so anyway, they, they are the ones that have sort of taken up postmodernism and critical theory. Um, and it's at odds with the traditions of enlightenment rationality where, where people analyze society through objective ways, through like real objective measurable data, not just subjectivism and people's relative experience and people's lived sto- stories and things like that. We're prioritizing that now over um, what were the traditional means of like knowledge production and truth seeking and sense making. And that's super dangerous and uh, I, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, the, 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 the universities and the academies are, have almost ceased to become what, what, they used, what they are, what they used to be. There's something completely different now, and I'm not sure if they'll ever be able to be, to be returned to what they, what they were when they prioritized objective you know, knowledge production. I mean, it's, it's, almost, uh, it's almost surreal to read some of the things that they'll say. I mean, there was the famous Smithsonian exhibit about whiteness that was, was saying, oh, you know, showing up on time and reason and like these rational thinking, these are signs of whiteness, which is horribly yeah. insulting to anyone who's not white. Um, I, if you're white, I think you're kind of like, thanks. Uh, but it's, it's, um, it's kind of this... I think you're you hit the nail on the head in that it's it's driven by activism. Whereas I often think of like you have you start with philosophy, maybe you start with metaphysics, epistemology, you work your way down to ethics, and then you're allowed to get into the realm of politics and figure out how those principles apply to uh, your political philosophy. But they're doing the reverse. I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw is a great example of this in her seminal work, where she 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 has a political agenda, and she employs uh, she she employs postmodern thinking when necessary to to talk about her intersectionality uh and she'll employ some critical theory but she'll explicitly reject the parts for example if someone were to say well can i identify as black well no 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 no. that part's like i like this other Mm -hmm. part of the postmodernism but you can't identify with the part that steps on my activism because my activism is the genesis of this entire thing i'm not i'm not being a philosopher trying to be consistent i'm being an activist like snatching things out of thin air 
uh, and and trying to stuff them together that I think will be helpful to win my case. I don't really care if they're contradictory, and I'm not trying to get at the truth in any way. I'm trying to achieve a political end. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, that's a good point. It, the activist part of this just reminds me so much of um, like Mao, and I like I keep wanting to call them the Red Army. That's not what they were. What were they called? Like the, Red the youth. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it reminds me so much of that. You indoctrinate them from a young age, you get them really riled up, believing, like truly believing that they are in the right and any violence or action they take is completely justified. And you have this force that's terrifying because you don't even need to direct them anymore. You just have to get them fired up over something and they'll do all the damage on their own. And I just, I just see such like a parallel right now between the red guard and what we're seeing in the Western world in general. It's a great parallel. Mao did very little himself mm -hmm. uh, to do any of this. He just kind of gave a nod to the right people and, and, and they, and the struggle sessions are something that, you know, we don't have actual struggle sessions where people get physically injured uh, so much. Uh, but, we definitely have online versions of struggle sessions uh, and we and you definitely see it uh, through social pressure and self-flagellation. Um, th this is something I. All right, Elliot, I'm going to I'm going to pick on on you because you're a Jew and I'm sorry, but I'm going to I'm going to do it because I, I grew up in a family around a lot of for a while. We thought we might be Jewish. There's like people missing in our family tree that we weren't sure what was going on. And and, you know, there's. Yiddish and matzah and like stuff in our house that seemed like it was like we had. So I, one thing I think about when I think about the Jewish culture is guilt. Like the, the Jewish, like the, the, the stereotypical Jewish mom is like, they can make you feel guilty about stuff really easily. And I think, and I look at in history and I think to myself, what other culture, what other civilization was wildly successful uh, and, and, you know, most civilizations acquired through conquering. That's been the history of mankind. That's not unique to the West, right? Was wildly successful, conquered and colonized. And then, like, 200 years later, basically, flag like, self-flagellated themselves. Like, wore a hair shirt and, like, went on hunger strike and destroyed themselves out of this unearned guilt several generations later, which is, you know, obviously we're not a Jewish culture, but we're a Judeo-Christian culture, and that Christians also have a lot of the, you know, a lot of the guilt stuff going on, and it's unearned. Is there a, is there a, is that being exploited somehow, like intentionally? Is it, is it, am I crazy to say that this is correlated to Judeo-Christian willingness to feel guilty? Because I, I don't see this in history. I don't see other cultures like, hey, we won 200 years ago, and Damn it, now we feel really bad and we have to like <laughs> slice our own wrists. Um, I guess I'll say two things. I think the Jewish guilt is more of a personal guilt. It's not, a, not usually a national guilt. Although I will say the peace process in Israel for the last 30 years is driven by the left wing who do feel guilty that they're in, in the land. They think really we did, we did kind of steal it. It's not really ours. The Arabs were there first. And what are we doing here? And even though we're actually living on old Arab houses in Tel Aviv, we'll actually give up the West Bank where there were no Arabs make ourselves feel good, you know, sort of assuage our guilt. Um, but I actually think it's the absence of religion that's the problem rather than the presence of religion. Um, was, I was reading a book called The Faith of Judaism, very boring title, but a very good book, actually. 
by Reverend Dr. Isidore Epstein from England many years ago, many decades ago. And he was talking about different arguments for religion or not against religion. And he said something many people always say, which is, what do you need religion for? I mean, that's assuming you don't need religion or don't need religion either. It's true or not true. But leaving that aside, what do you need religion for? You know, people are ethical and moral even without religion. And he gave an analogy. I don't think it was his original analogy, but his analogy was you have a, um, a train running on steam. When the steam runs out, the train doesn't automatically stop that second. It will continue going several miles. It will slowly stop. He said, we're, he's, I think he was writing in the 1950s. He said, we're kind of the first generation of people who are rejecting religion. He said, it's not going to really be clear until another two or three generations pass if religion really has an effect on people's behavior or doesn't have an effect on people's behavior. And I think we're seeing that now. I think people on the left, they don't have religion. So they have no, first of all, they have no objective source of reality or objective source of truth or even any source of transcendence. So first of all, they have a void in their own lives they're trying to, feel, to fill. There's no transcendence in their lives. There's no meaning in their lives. They have to, and most people want to live for something. So they have to fill in a hole, and they want to fill in that hole with liberalism. Liberalism becomes its own sort of religion. And then second of all, also, though, as part of this religion, because there is no transcendent objective source of truth or reality, you could construct reality however you want. There are no rules. There is no, two plus two is four according to you, but not necessarily according to someone else. And therefore, anything can be anything. A man can be a woman. A woman can be a man. I'm not sure why a white can be a black and black can't be a white. That's coming. But there was, I think, a man in Italy who was on a dating site, and he was in his 60s. And he said, I feel younger. I feel like I'm in my 40s. I want to date 40-year-old girls. Why do I have to list my age on the dating site at 65 when I, when I feel like I'm 45? And he sued in court, and he lost. I don't know why he lost. I mean, he should have won, I think. But, <laughs> but I, I think the, the problem really is the absence of religion, not the presence of religion. I mean, I, I see your point about the, the Jewish guilt. I have to think about that a little bit more. <laughs> I think our national guilt, what's going on here, is not, and it's only really America. I mean, they're really, really, I mean, places like people in South America feel guilty that they're in South America. I mean, it's not, not like it's not like they spoke Spanish, you know, in, in, in Britain, Brazil, Portugal. Brazil speaks Portuguese, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so the other ones, all the other South American countries, it's not like they spoke Spanish there, you know, a thousand years ago. They're there because they conquered it. Do they go around all day long feeling guilty? It's really the decadent, rich Western part of, of the rich, yeah. rich, decadent part, the religious part of the West. That feels guilty. So I think the correlation more is with the absence of religion than the presence of it. I'll have to think about that because I, I definitely, I think the it's a hundred percent correlated to wealth. So I think uh, if you're in Venezuela, uh, it's hard for someone to convince you that you should feel guilty about how well things are going for you. It's like, all right, well, you know. So I, I, I think it's definitely easier to get people who are. Uh, comfortable to feel guilty um and i and i will say this the 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 atheists have by and large and this is the thing i i can't stand about most atheists uh I, and i would guess the number is probably 95 percent of them if not more um what they did was they replaced religion with the state so they and i just call them state theists right so they they went from like well here's where my ethics come from whatever religion it was and and here's my moral code and this is what's right and this is this is where i get my sense of transcendence to uh oh it comes from democracy and and service to the state and 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 they've replaced ethics with statistics uh so like well more people vote for it therefore it's good um that's you know that's my entire ethical system and uh and you know the the state says it the state wants it done which is very hegelian 
right? It it it, it does you know it does trace its roots back to Hegel and then I'm through, I'm through Marx and others, but um, it seems like I don't think actually we abandoned religion. I think we abandoned the main religions and we adopted a new one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also yeah, I agree with that, Carter. And I, I agree with you too, Elliot. I think uh, religion is re, religion and just tradition in general is could potentially be the antidote to woke wokeism. Um, and I'm I'm not even really coming from a religious background, but I, I thought about this in a in a couple different ways. Um, like Noam Chomsky, the linguist, has a theory called I language, and that's this really cool idea that. Because why do people learn language? Why does everybody learn language? I mean, I guess their parents teach you, but some parents aren't so good. You know, some some parents, some kids have more access to language. But it seems like if you just put a kid around language, they will pick it up. And so the theory that uh, the theory of I language is that there's some innate structure in the brain that's that's human, very human. Other animals don't have it, and that that gives us that susceptibility to be able to pick up languages, any language. I have the feeling that there's some structure in the brain, we could call it our language, but it's the same thing with religion, that when people go through religious ritual or ceremony or prayer or any of those sort of meditative type things, it puts you into a very right brain frame of mind. It's not a, you're not in an analytical, having a conversation about politics anymore. You're not using your left brain. It's it's a right brain experience. It usually involves others. It's usually a communal experience. These are things that have bound families and communities. And well, we haven't had nations for that long, but you get the idea of republics and, and, and groupings of peoples, communities and peoples. It's bound them together for centuries, maybe thousands of years. And the statistics do show that we have moved away from religion, especially the, the main ones like Christianity and whatever, apostasy, well, I guess is the term. But people have largely kind of turned their nose up to it. And um, I think they've replaced it with this woke religion because we have something in our brain maybe that really requires us to have belief in things that objectivity can't explain. Because object, there is a, a point where objectivity and science and logic kind of fail us because I guess things are complicated out there. So we need something that picks up that slack and, and religion and sort of right brain, spiritual things. Like I, I even find like some friends that have been sort of more into yoga and meditation, maybe not necessarily religion. They seem less strung out than everybody else. Maybe they're getting some, some of that time spent, you know, with others in sort of a yoga community setting where they're sort of doing relaxing, breathing, and meditative, right brain oriented things. Um, and churches really do do that. Anytime I have been part of a church ceremony thing, there's something really special about mm -hmm. the rituals they go through and the communal aspect of it. And, you know, the fact that these are century long traditions and the people like are, are there are taking it really serious. And, you know, there's something really cool about that. And when we just rob that of a people, like really quickly, the way it has fallen off very quickly, um, your analogy about that train thing, about not, not knowing where, where this is going <laughs> to lead, that's a good one. And mm -hmm. it, so far, it looks like woke, the woke movement is is it. And if we keep following that through to the next logical conclusion, it's not looking good. So I, I, I recommend a, a return to just traditional things. And religion is, is one of those things. Go ahead, Elliot. I was just going to say very quickly, 
I understand your point about the statism, but I think it's I think it's more than that. I'll just take marijuana as an example. That's not from the state that was against the state. Marijuana is Ill illegal according to federal law, and liberals don't care. Which just in general, liberals that never have have a problem breaking the law when it suits them. The right wing is always very nice about these things. The right wing, well, the Supreme Court rules, we'll just take a back seat. No, no, no. The left doesn't operate like that. It's like, you know, illegal immigration, we don't care. We're a sanctuary city. Marijuana is illegal, we don't care. We're not going to obey the law. I, I don't know what it is. I don't have the answer, but I think wokeism is more than just statism. Oh, I, I agree that wokeism is more than just statism. I think, I, I think when I was talking about state theism, it was really like what atheists have replaced the, the, the god with. Um, but I think wokeism is, uh, I mean, I, I predominantly I think wokeism is actually a psychological, not an intellectual phenomenon, and I think it's uh, it's uh, it's it's psychological nihilism just projected out to. That's yeah. all it is. Um, so, uh, which is why they don't agree on like what utopia should we build? It's like, well, that's not. We don't need to agree on that because we're burning and destroying. We're not talking about building. Okay. We'll figure that part out later. <laughs> or not. Because that's how everybody who builds things does it. We just destroy everything first. <laughs> yeah, that's what a great contractor. I'm, I don't know. I'm going to bulldoze your house, and then we'll think about what to do after, after that. Yeah, we'll figure it out. So I'm, I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be, as the, I think, probably the only atheist on the stream who hates a lot of atheists, uh, I, need, I need to defend, um, I need to defend one thing. With, well, I do think that you're probably right that there is a, um, I th well, there have been studies about tradition and ritual and f um, actually doing things together, um, activating certain parts of the brain, which don't get activated on your own. So like, even if it's just going to a sporting event, which is h how you get crowds sometimes to behave horribly, but also sometimes to do interesting things, right? There's, there's a different um, feeling that you get. Uh, I will say that it is in order to, at least for me, in order to be an atheist and be sane, uh, what I need to do was embrace exactly what you're saying, which is like, there's a bunch of stuff I can't know. I don't know. Like, the answer I don't know is a valid answer, and I have to sit with that discomfort. And I think a lot of people do not like sitting with that discomfort. And so if if someone who is going to tell them to do much, like, a lot of evil comes along, but they've got an answer that helps them get out of that discomfort. Um, I think it, I, I think they jump at that opportunity. And I think and I think that's why we're in a psychological state of this wokeism where there's a lot of people that have a lot of um, they've got a lot of angst psychologically. And this isn't he, this isn't a way wokeism is not a way to heal it, uh, but it's, it's like heroin. It's like, well, do you want do you want to feel good for a moment? And then you can go back to feeling lousy uh, when we're done with you know, whatever outrage we're going to get upset about. As soon as you're done filming your TikTok video, you'll be upset again. But, you know, you're going to get it out of your system for a moment. All right. I agree. <laughs> I, I, would say, I don't mind atheists. I mind arrogant atheists. That's all yeah. I mind. Because like you said, yeah. there are so many questions, but on both sides. There are a lot of questions about the nature of the world, why we're here, all that stuff. And someone's... Just all I ask for is humility. It's the arrogant atheist that I can't stand the most. Like, really? Like, you know the answers. Everything settles for you. It's like, really? Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and I, my atheism is really driven by, like, a dedication to reason. And that you have, to, like, if you're going to be dedicated to that, you have to at least go, oh, well, I, I reached the end. Like, I'm at the point where the answer is, <laughs> I don't know. Like, all right, yeah. that's fine. Like, yeah, and you got to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, but, which can I mean, be tough for, for, like, finding meaning in life and whatever else, and, like, it, there, there's, there's work to be done there. But, um, but I don't think most... I think when we're talking about atheists generally, I don't think that's the path that most atheists choose. I think they, they want... They like the certainty. Certainty feels really good. Um, and they like certainty about uh, moral issues because moral certainty feels awesome. Uh, and so they, they, political activism gives them that feeling. Uh, and frankly, I think they would be political activists. A lot of people would be political activists no matter what the politics. It just so happens that wokeism is the default socially acceptable politics to be an activist about right now. But if it were literally, you know, fascism, okay, they would be activist fascists. They don't, they haven't thought about their positions intellectually, they're responding to their peers emotionally. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, that's why you see that no matter what side of the political spectrum, you can get a large group of people willing to do almost anything if they believe in your version of things. I mean, I feel like people don't like to have to make their own decisions like on a large scale. So they like, that's why they like experts. That's why it was so easy for the past two years to just be trust the experts. And it's like, you know, experts are also people. So they just know more about this subject than, you know, the random person does. And for a lot of people, they're totally comfortable with just, okay, well, that guy has a PhD in that field. So he absolutely knows everything there is to know about this subject. And I am okay with following whatever he says to do. And it, it really, it's like intellectual laziness, but I think, I think, I, I think about this all the time. We just live in a world where there are a lot of people that lack deep thinking, critical thinking skills at, at all. So they can't think it through for themselves or it would take a large, a long process for them to kind of learn how to do that because we don't teach that at all in school anymore. I think that's intentional, but okay. yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it seems to be, especially with all the, the, the emphasis on the identity politics, like where the schools were already kind of struggling to, to, to compete, you know, academically. And then they introduce all critical race theory and radical gender theory and, in Canada, it's a lot of post-colonial theory. They, it drives me nuts, but they, they do refer to the students in some cases as settlers or unwelcome settlers, oh. you know? And some people have this notion that with, because of colonialism, whatever, we stole the land from the indigenous and, and it's just so black and white like that, where it's not that black and white at all. There we are, there's a long history of cooperation um, and mutual sort of cooperation between the indigenous and Canadians. We had a, we had a thriving fur trade with them for like a hundred years before there were any, any problems. Um, but what, what is, what is really interesting about, because the, the history seems to be a huge thing with wokeism. I don't know if it's, it's, it's as big in um, the colonialism is as big in the States, but in, in Canada, like it seems we do everything that you guys do, but, but we just take it even further. Like we really go with it. Uh, but you guys, you guys inspire us. We just, we just take it an extra mile. But there's a real big influence on uh, colonialism here, a deep, deep decolonization, um, and it's a very weird situation in Canada. That's kind of why the unmarked graves uh, story became so sensational. But what we, what people don't realize is what 
the unique situation between the settlers and the indigenous here was that there was, for the first time ever, this didn't really happen in other parts of the world. It's kind of a unique Canadian thing or North American thing, I guess, um, is that the, the, the Europeans were thousands of years ahead in terms of cultural development. So to this day, the problems is like dealing with that gap, dealing, dealing with that gap in development. Um, for the first hundred years when we first contacted them, like I said, we had this fur trade that was thriving. So it, it worked because it incorporated what the indigenous people were doing. But as soon as they were, we were trapping furs and then selling them to rich people in Europe. They were wearing beaver hats and stuff like that. But that, that's what our country is built on, that fur trade. It was huge. And the indigenous did well in it. And so did, so did the uh, settlers. But when that trade like went away, then the indigenous started to have issues, started to um, like they, they had a buffalo for years that they lived with buffalo and the buffalo all died off. And then there became issues. And, it, and those issues have, have been dealt, we've been dealing with those issues ever since, trying to take people who were basically like a hunter-gatherer civilization and then trying to somehow train them up so they could do agriculture and industry and all these things. And there's tons of examples of successful Indigenous people all over the world. We have Canadians that are internationally celebrated, like Thompson Highway is an example, um, brilliant Indigenous people who were educated and all these things. But with both decolonization and indigenization, it looks at this process of enculturation of sort of the white settlers helping the Indigenous, you know, learn English, learn how to write, learn how to do, like, how to function in a, in a modern, like, capitalist society. It looks at that process of enculturation. They actually call it cultural genocide in Canada. That's a normal process of, of enculturation or assimilation or integration. All three terms are used. But in Canada, because of wokeism and sort of this postmodern conception of, of relativism, whereas the indigenous, we have to conceive of the, the indigenous people at the time of contact, they were just as advanced as the settlers were, but just in a different way. We have to condescend to them and, and tell these stories. And this is the, this is the issue that is hurting the indigenous most, that the, the not recognizing that there is a thousand year, thousands of years of gap in development, or there was at the time of contact. And that is the, the, the problem that's we've been dealing with ever since. It's not um, the intergenerational trauma of residential schools, which you wouldn't believe how much that gets parroted in, in Canada. Study after, like, like even in academic studies, like there are, are, the academy in Canada has been completely colonized by postmodern academics. So uh, like I do a lot of research into indigenous issues and over and over and over again, you see no matter if they're talking about fetal alcohol syndrome, which on our reserves in Canada, the disparity of kids with fetal alcohol syndrome is way off the roof. It's way out of proportion with the rest of Canada. And no matter what it is, they blame residential schools. Even if they didn't go to a residential school, even if their parents didn't go to the residential school, maybe a grandparent went. It's intergenerational trauma. We just had a mass killing of it. There was a two in, indigenous guys off a reserve just went crazy and killed a bunch of people with knives, including a grandmother in front of her uh, kids and everything. And in the wake of that, same thing. We have the indigenous scholars who are really activists masquerading as academics, apologizing for this. Um, saying that it's inter intergenerational trauma due to, to the legacy of residential schools. And for number one, only a third of Indigenous kids actually went to residential schools. Another third went to different schools and another third didn't go to school at all. So it's just so overblown, all these narratives, not just the unmarked grave thing, everything in the Indigenous world is, 
<laughs> an exaggeration. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you get, I mean, you, you kind of, you said this, but it, it's, it's the, you're, you're actually being, the West is being criticized for its virtue, not its vice. Right. So it's, it's to want to bring a people that were a thousand years behind into modern life, to want to set up schools to teach them, to want to help them assimilate, to want to help them uh, catch up to you, is, is, yeah. that is a noble effort. I mean, it's a, it's a generous thing to do. Uh, in the yeah. past, uh, colonizers might have just murdered everyone. Uh, because well, they in other parts of the world, they did. Uh, like in Spanish, right. in, in Mexico, the S Spanish um, colonized Mexico, and they pretty much committed a genocide over the majority of the indigenous people that were there. Al although out of the indigenous that did survive, they they live today and they coexist peacefully, and no one's blaming the other of of genocide or colonization or nothing. They're just like that's the past. Why why would it matter what happened like literally four or five hundred, six hundred years ago? It's nothing to do with what's going on today. Um, and really what, what this is in Canada is this is politicians not wanting to deal with the very real issues that we have with Indigenous people on reserves. It's awful. It's like a third world. We have people living in squalor. But at the same time, we have elite, neo-tribal, privileged Indigenous leaders who are rich. We have uh, universities that are building lavish Indigenous centres. So there's money for that. But there's there's not money for like all the kids with fetal alcohol syndrome on a reserve that nobody knows about or we know about but but and we and we talk about it we use that as a, as a kind of like the activists are using that as a cudgel to extract money but then really the money goes into process it there's there's a there's a whole bureaucracy in this Aboriginal industry we're, we're talking about academics lawyers consultants. Um, people in sinecure positions, government positions. We have reserves in Canada where they're completely dependent. Either people are collecting a welfare check or if they have a job, it's a government job. It's 100%, they have no economy whatsoever. They're 100% dependent. Um, so th that's what I mean. Like that the issues are, it's, it's not unmarked graves. It's remote, it should be remote reserves where people are nowhere near uh, uh, an economic center and they and so they'll always be dependent that's what we should be talking about not um get bring getting more money more millions and millions of dollars for searching for more unmarked graves we're literally doing that when we have people living in squalor desperately um that you know politicians talk about but don't do anything to ever help and the whole thing is when Justin Trudeau gets to do his unmarked grave photo ops and they virtue signal over unmarked graves and they talk about residential schools, they're not talking about the actual issues. But they're seen by the Canadian public as caring about the Indigenous and they're seen as, oh, they're so virtuous, they care so much. But they're, that's, it's all a ploy, so they don't actually have to deal with what's going on. And this has been going on for generations, decades. Every new government that comes in, the same thing, they don't want to actually deal with the Indigenous issue. They'd rather just keep cutting checks, keep it the way it is. Well, I don't want to deal with that. You know, that's it's very much like that. And uh, we have desperate people that are living in a third world condition in one of the richest countries in the world. It doesn't make any sense. Well, there's an inherent contradiction built in because you're not allowed to say that the way they're living is worse than the way that you're living, uh, because that in itself is is a sin. 
Yeah, it's it's. I don't care about that, Sen. I'm I'm going to tell it like it is. Uh, women and children have no rights on reserves. There's women. Uh, women get sexually abused, and what happens is they have to sit. A, the woman has to sit in a forgiveness circle, and uh, forgive her rapist. She has to listen to his apology and forgive it, and then she has to listen to all the elders make excuses for him that oh he did he's a good guy he was just drunk. Over and over and over again. Um, it's alcohol is a huge problem. Uh, substance abuse is a huge problem. It's um, so interesting about that too. And I, I recently I did some research, and it's the rate of alcoholism in Indigenous communities is actually lower than in the rest of Canada. It's not alcoholism that's the problem. It's binge drinking. It's like a partying mentality. They get a hold of a bunch of like when welfare checks come in or, or, or when the truth and reconciliation gives them huge windfalls because of past wrongs that happened at residential schools, whatever. Um, they spend this money on a lot of, not all of them, but a, a lot of them are spending monies on, on the, their money on drugs and alcohol and then they're committing more abuse. It's just feeding an abusive cycle. Like you don't do that. You don't give people who are, like we said, they're, that were thousands of years behind they're suffering, they're desperate, they don't have access to services, they're not getting proper education, there's high rates of fetal alcohol syndrome, there's high rates of, of like just abuse and all kinds of all kinds of problems. You don't give those, just give people money like that. Those, you know, those, those are people that are unable to help themselves. What they need is services. They need access to services, they need education, they need people to help them. They don't need a 10,000, 20,000, $100,000 check. And there's so many accounts of people who were given these big windfalls that uh, ended up kind of just broken a few years anyway. All the money was wasted on substance abuse or or, or whatever. But, so what yeah. you're saying is you're saying they need residential schools. <laughs> you know, there I've had there's one scholar that said what would be the best thing would be a, something like a residential school, but for the whole family. As for kids that for I'm talking about for, for them that are off on reserves and they're very remote. Like there's some of them you can't even get to by a, a you have to fly there on a plane or a helicopter or something. Like that's like there there's they will never be able to build an economy out of that. But again, with this sort of indigenization, it's very condescending. It tells the indigenous people that they should revitalize their culture, that they should go back to the to time of contact because the white man stole it from them, inter interrupted their development. So we need to go back to fur trapping and back to ice fishing. This is very condescending. Um, it's an awful thing to tell them because they will, there is no economy anymore in fur trapping or ice fishing or bear hunting or whatever. It doesn't matter, like cultural revitalization and connecting with your culture, that's a different thing. And that's up, for the, that's up to the indigenous to do that. But what we should be doing as a country, our tax dollars and things like that, should be helping them to get into jobs and become part of productive members of society and not in dependent reserves. Where that dependent reserves is where abuse and alcoholism and all the problems just fester. Yeah. You are, you, you've mentioned there kind of cherry picking of history and it. it's reminding me of something that um or their characterization of history uh it's reminding me of something that i uh i, I wanted to bring up to in our previous discussion so i'm gonna i'm gonna resurrect it and i'm gonna say because juliet was talking about how this is similar to the cultural revolution in china um and i will say china is a country of mostly atheists uh and they have in its history 
There's plenty of atrocities and killing and killing of people of different ethnicities and whatever. Uh, I know to white people, we're, you know, we look at them and say all look same, but they are different ethnicities and they've killed each other. Um, and so they have some of those built-in problems. Um, no one in China is even remotely on the verge of feeling guilty. Like no one, no one with a penthouse in Shenzhen is donating to like the indigenous peoples of blah, 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 because you know, my ancestors stomped on their ancestors. There is something culturally unique about the West. And I think it's a double-edged sword. I think there's something good about the West in that we care about universal ethics. So we care about other people in a way that maybe the Chinese don't generally, but it seems to also be what's biting us in the ass. So I'm gonna throw that back to Elliot who said, it's uh, we need more religion because China doesn't have religion and they're not suiciding themselves. I mean, the people aren't, maybe the CCP is. That is a good point. Um, maybe you need to have religion first and when you lose it, then you have this type of guilt or this void that needs to be filled. No, but I guess uh, the natural man, you know, the caveman, you know, many, many thousands of years ago, a, a brute doesn't really feel guilt, I think, for hitting you over the head and knocking you out and taking your, you know, his deer to eat for supper that night. Um, so to the extent that I guess you could, well, I'm not sure that's a good analogy because then I'm, I'm claiming that the Asians are, are closer to our ancestors than we are. Um, so I'm not sure I want to say that or not. But I think you have to have a kind of philosophy that you don't grow up feeling guilty. So it's not natural to feel guilty. And also, on the historical point, I often wonder like where we want to start history because in the past, obviously, war and conquest was part of history all the time. I often think to myself, well, what would be an analogy for the future? And here's one example I came up with. Imagine like 100 years ago, people said, could you imagine that 100 years ago, people used to like wrap a rope around a dog's neck and walk it around the street? Can you imagine how cool it is, people? So, so I mean, yeah. that's the type of thing that we're talking about. War and conquest just was a normal part of history. No one thought twice about it. It was just normal, just like slavery was normal. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It just was normal. People didn't, didn't occur to anybody not to do it. So that's why like you're talking about the people in Mexico who are getting along with the people who conquered them. They understand. They were conquered. That's it. This is, this is what happened. And we'll move on. I mean, even like the Japanese, and maybe now it's starting, but as far as I'm aware, at least till recently, there wasn't a massive movement in Japan, a massive anti-American movement in Japan. They realized they were crushed, but that's okay because they started the war. They understand that's what happens in war. Sometimes you get crushed. And even though we dropped two nukes on them, they get it and they moved on. So um, I sometimes just wonder where, where they want to start history and you know when, when the rules are supposed to change and when they're not supposed to change. And all these Canadians who feel guilty, I mean, are they planning on going back to Europe exactly? What's their plan? You know, where do they plan on going? And, and where, again, where do you start? Because almost every nation in Europe also was conquered by another people at one point or another. I mean, England wasn't filled with the Anglo-Saxons a thousand years ago. They had other people there, and they were conquered. So, it's a strange world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems I to mean, be a uniquely Western, uh, a, and it's a uniquely Western thing, and it also seems to be a new thing in history. And that that's something I, I got to give us. We did something new because all other countries and all their nations and areas of the world, we just sort of repeat history over and over again. But it's like this is we found something new to do. We'll attack ourselves from within. Oikophobia is that term. It's a, it comes from the Greek word uh, uh, homeland. It's like fear and loathing, a hatred of your surroundings and your home and your natural environment. Oikophobia, that's exactly what it is. It's the whole West is going through a, a, a convulsion of oikophobia. 
and it's kind of it's sort of generated in the activist academic kind of world that's where it sort of took root but it has since spilled over into all kinds of other areas of life and now things that used to make clear sense and and be easy to identify now it's like not 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 the case and it's bizarre i mean even again to go back to what people naturally do when you have kids you don't tell them you know and of course, all of our parents have flaws, but you'll tell your kids, you know, grandmother had this flaw and grandpa had that flaw. Generally speaking, you try to, you know, stress their virtues so that your kids take after them. And again, we're not stupid. We all know our parents and grandparents have flaws. But again, you stress the positive about your parents, about your school, about your community, about your nation. Now, that's what normal people do. You have to be somehow psychologically warped. I mean, like you said, well, you know, wokeism is some sort of psychological phenomenon, not intellectual phenomenon. Something's wrong okay. with your brain. The stress is bad about you. It's not normal. <laughs> yeah. 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 Big time. Very, very narcissistic. Um, okay. Are we going to look at the other stories too? Is there time? Or are we? Uh, yeah, I was going to. I was just about to say we should move on to some more stories. So, speaking um, of like the, the narcissists and what kind of what you're saying there, I, I, I'm really wondering because this other story I was going to bring up, I was wondering if you guys, because you guys are all American, right? Mm -hmm. Did you guys hear about this? This has actually happened in Oakville, which is a neighbor to me. I live in Mississauga, which is in Ontario. I'm in the greater Toronto area. There's a school board there called Halton School Board. And a teacher went to school. Last year was a man. <laughs> Apparently over the summer there was changes. Not just the pronouns. And it's still a man, but, but, but continue. So the pronouns are she, her. So it's a trans person, which that would not necessarily be a big issue except for the fact that the person is Two wearing a mammoth prosthetic breasts. There's the picture. With tight t-shirts and mammoth nipples put, put right out um, with the tight cycling shorts. So yeah, this is, and the, uh, uh, the school is defending it. This is, this is uh, the school is defending this teacher. This is inclusion and equity and diversity. Um, <laughs> They have a safety plan for the teacher to make sure because obviously some parents, some students are upset. Students are upset and uh, they are are made to feel that they have to um, validate this teacher's sexual fantasies. I, I think this is a case of autogynophilia. Mm -hmm. This is a, a man who is getting sexually aroused by doing this in front of kids. And so the kids not being allowed to express you know, um, they're up, they're, they're, you know, they're, that they're uncomfortable with this. Really, it's almost like they're being forced to participate in this. And I've, I've seen this uh, described as a contactless sex crime because you're not making contact. But if you're autogynephilic, you're doing this for sexual arousal and it involves the kids in your class. A contactless sex crime seems like a good description of what's happening here but yet the school board is defending it on the basis of diversity, equity, and inclusion, transgender activism, trans activism, all the, all the stuff, you, you know how it goes. It's like flashing, right? The contactless sex crimes, it's right here. Yeah, exactly. It's funny you picked that story because my story is very similar to that one, actually. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> on, on Friday, I was going all around Orthodox Jewish media. There's an all girls school in Brooklyn it's actually in the Syrian Jewish community. And they hired what they thought was a female, I think a history teacher. And 
he, it's, it's, it's really a he, not a she, and he presented himself as a, as a she, and he presented himself even as orthodox, kind of wearing skirts, even wearing like a wig. So obviously a strange fellow. And but then they found out, the students are telling their parents, this person has, his voice sounds very male-like. And then there, I think it was orientation, one of the parents took a video. And I think, I'm pretty sure they fired him, at least that's what I, I understand. I hope they don't get a lawsuit out of it. But again, this is like a religious school, an all-girls school, and this man decides to get a job in this school, trying to, trying to be a woman. I mean, we are going, very strange territory. These people are, well, they're not just narcissistic. They, 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 they want what they want. It's all about them. It's not about anybody else. I mean, like Yeshiva University has having that now also, the college, where they have some students who yep. are, there you go. Wow, you got it quickly. That's a man? He's a man. I know. he doesn't. Most of them don't right. do a really job. That he, doesn't he, look like a man. Wow. He did I mean, I guess so, yeah. So there's some students at Yeshiva University who also sued the university. They want to have an LGBT club. And like you're going to an Orthodox institution. Like if you don't like Orthodox values, go elsewhere. But no, it's all about them. Yeah. They need to shove it down your throat. It's like, um, you know, the story of uh, Esther, the book of Esther in the Bible. It's like Haman insists that Mordecai bow down to him. It's not enough that everyone else bow down, bow down, bows down to him. Mordecai needs to bow down to him. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. It's not like, it's not live and let live. That was the, le- the left's old motto. Today it's, no, here are my values. I am correct. And I'm going to force my values down your throat. And I don't care what you think. And in your case, unfortunately, in the Canada, it's like you have all these woke boards. And I, I don't know, do you have a movement now in Canada? Because in America, I think people start have started waking up and realized that we need to start uh, caring about who's on these school boards. And there's a movement in America to try to get some yes. from right-wing parents to try to get right-wing people on the school boards. I don't know if there's a similar movement in Canada yet. I'm part of the movement in Canada. Oh, we're very good. small. We're very small. But we're very much inspired by Chris Rufo, who's leading the American movement, the lawyer in the States. What a, what a rock star that guy is. Right. Um, and his whole team. And there's a lot of a lot of parent group, groups in the States. I, I love Americans for that. Like when they encounter nonsense, they confront it. Uh, Canadians, we are we are tough, but it takes a lot. It really you got to push us far. We'll tolerate a lot. We, we really want to be fair. And we got to We got to like you, could, you really got to convince us that that uh, and convince the whole country, I guess that things are not being fair, that this is not about um, inclusion of somebody. This is about the kids, you know, this is freaking kids out. Uh, they're not comfortable with this. Uh, and it seems like something's up here uh, with this te- this teacher in Oakville. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Oakville one, I mean, they, they both are problematic. I hate to use that word. I can't use that word now. Uh, they're both a problem uh, for different reasons uh, to me. I mean, but, you know, I was thinking about the one in, in Canada, and it is a, I mean, I, I understand the pushback and using the word grooming. I, I get that that's hyperbole. However, um, this is why that word is effective, because it is foisting your sexuality into the personal space of children. And while that might not be sufficient for a full-fledged grooming, it is a an important aspect of grooming. And it's, you know, we would feel the same way about, I think, about, I would thought, how would I feel about a cisgendered woman 
who just dressed like a prostitute to teach shop class. I think we would be similarly outraged and we would say, look, like this is not an appropriate thing. This is why schools have dress codes. You know, this is this is supposed to be uh, not the bedroom, but a, a, a space in which sexuality is muted. It's reserved, for, like sexuality is private. You know, we're not asking you to wear our binders so that we can't see you, your breasts, but we are saying like, it, this is not this is not the place to uh, explore your sexual self-expression. This is a place to learn woodworking or whatever that class was like. That's yeah. what this is for. Um, and we seem to be I it seems to like that they're doing this intentionally that like this person this isn't no one looks at this person and says, oh, he or she or whatever she, she's just being herself she's just like this is just how she naturally feels like she is and that's totally fine and there's nothing it's that her attire and her fake giant like ridiculously <laughs> ogreish breasts or whatever like are that's they're not i don't believe that that was chosen in a vacuum i believe that that outfit and that look was chosen intentionally to provoke at a junior high school or high school or wherever it is um and not only are we letting them get away with that but if you went into like if you went into a high school and you said it's anything goes and we have to allow people to express themselves that person would be ridiculed and bullied out of high school because high school kids would be brutal by nature at someone who expressed that kind of dysfunction they would say you know they would mock her they would uh express their rejection but that side's being suppressed so only the gun of the autogatophilia is being allowed to express and no social pushback is being allowed to express which i don't understand why this isn't obvious even to like a lot of mildly leftist parents who aren't actually activists look at this and think well you're the jerk for not letting this person express themselves and it seems like they wouldn't say that if the teacher came in and just flashed the class, would they? Well, actually, there's uh, with all of this. Oh, this um, <laughs> yeah, there, there is. There, there, this is worse. This is worse than uh, high school kids. I, I've seen video. It's there, I think it might have been libs of tip, TikTok with all of the uh, drag shows that they've been bringing kids to. There's one. There's one video that circulated on the, on the internet where the transvestite exposed himself to the kids just for a flash of a second. But uh, you see the kids' reaction and everything, and the kids look like, "What the hell?" Like it's, yeah. So um, I mean, isn't that illegal? Well, yeah. I, but I mean, w wouldn't you have thought, like, even five years ago, if somebody said, "Oh, like, there's going to be a movement where there's going to be all kinds of kids, groups of kids going to drag shows." You'd be like, no way, that's not going to happen. That's totally happening. You know, they think that this is um, like, you know, the, the, the uh, criticism that the LGBTQ is getting. A lot of people are saying we need to get rid of the T because it's trans activism and, and it's that. It's just like, let the, there's a, there is an LGB alliance who I actually support, but it's not just the T, it's the Q. Mm -hmm. It's the Q that's allowing for this teacher. It's queer theory. Queer theory is the dissolving all normativity tearing down all the structures and everything and exploring all this stuff identity 
different identities, different sexuality, different genders, like that it's queer theory that's responsible for all this. So what this lady is doing is, is an expression that's completely consistent with what uh, a practicing queer theorist would, 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 would think it's great. And like what you say, like nobody would, nobody would think this is okay. And you're right. Like people are outraged by this, except for the people in power that could do something about it. They think it's okay. They are the ones saying, oh no, we're going to develop a safety plan for this teacher so that no one bothers her while she walks to school with her giant, you know, uh, prosthetic breasts. I, like, I think it's important to point out that I think a lot of people don't know that, uh, and I, this maybe will help people think about the word queer. Queering is a verb in, in yes. queer theory. And so to understand that the activist goal is to, to what they intentionally do is they, they look for what they would call a power structure, but it's basically anything that is existing now and not yet existing in the future. And say they need to queer it. So they'll go in and they say, we need to queer this thing. We need to queer gender. We need to queer math. Like they need to queer every everything needs to be they need queered. To queer childhood is what they say. Yes. They queer, I've heard them say that childhood as it is expressed in Western societies, they've called it performative. Childhood is performative. Children are just performing, acting like children. What they need is queer theory to learn how to tear all that structure down those parameters that they perform within you have i mean going back to an earlier point religion sometimes does provide certain objective truths and reality but even leaving religion aside and even leaving those parts of, of reality where religion doesn't have anything to say you need to have certain just like basic axioms in life to have to live a normal life um thomas dalrymple wrote a book called i think it's called in defense of prejudice and i think his mm -hmm. basic point was like, I'll just give an example. I don't think this is not his example, but, you know, who's to say we should walk on our feet rather than our hands? And if you think about it, I mean, is there any great moral argument you can make for why we should walk on our feet instead of our hands? No. But we, we need to have a prejudice. We need to have, otherwise you can't live life. Everyone just have, will do what they want, and it will just be mm -hmm. havoc and craziness. You need to have norm, norms so that if somebody decides to walk on their hands, the parent and the teacher says, no, you're, you're acting crazy, get up, start walking on your feet. You need to have, what he said, in defense of prejudices. And says if we don't stand up for our, our own prejudices, it will be filled by other people, by other people's prejudices who will insist on their prejudices. So like this woke board in Canada, there is nothing like you said, you know, that why why didn't they push back? You know, whatever is popular, they will bend that bend down to because there's no great argument not to bend down to it. So whatever the next craziness is, they'll say, Why not? The argument always says, Why not? What's your argument against it? And my answer is you're right, there is no argument against it. There's no argument for walking on your feet. There's no argument for why your zipper should be in the front, not in the back. There's no argument yeah. for a million and a half things. But we just need to have normal life. Well, I, well, I, I'll I can come up with arguments for all those things. They might not be moral, <laughs> but they are practical arguments. Practical, but you know what? He makes him feel good. He likes wearing his zipper in the back. He likes it. It makes him feel good. Who are you to say that he's weird for doing that? And, and the answer if is, someone wants to wear a zipper in the back, actually, I would be okay with it. But but I will say... That's what you did. You would, you would say no. Your kid did. You would say, cut it out. You're being acting a little stupid. <laughs> oh, my kid did? Yeah, I mean, I would probably point out the impracticality of having one zipper in the back. But if it I mean, there is more... a reason that zippers are in the front, that there actually is a reason for that. I think if it lasted more than a week, you would start saying, "Okay, you know, you had your face cut it out." Maybe. I hope I don't get tested on that. So, I 
one thing that I like about uh, what you're saying here is it, it's something that I've been I've been arguing about as a I'll I'll use say small L libertarian but uh, type of type of person is you can't have um, if you're not willing to to use uh, social pressure and ostracism to enforce norms uh, then what will happen is they will get enforced by the state that's what will happen and they might not be your norms that get end up enforced by the state someone's norms will get enforced by the state but what they're trying to do and they've and the left has done a, I think a fantastic job of this is they've um, they've convinced a whole bunch of well-meaning people that uh, that social pressure and ostracism is a is is quote hurtful and hurtful is bad and bullying is bad I got into an argument actually the other day with someone who's that she said oh I'm fat shaming I didn't mean to and I said like look I people ought to not feel good about being fat like you don't have to say you're not a good person for being fat like mm -hmm. there is a difference between being a bully and and saying and, and celebrating overweight like it's the social pressure of someone saying you're unhealthy is valuable even for the person that's receiving the social pressure and if you're not willing to do that um i think those norms get they end up getting enforced by the state and we have we're a, we're a society right now of people who are terrified of expressing an opinion or applying social pressure to someone because it will make them feel bad right and so people don't want to mock the person whose breasts weigh 35 pounds and are prosthetic and it's a guy and like but that person probably should be mocked like that's a mock worthy event that person should be ridiculed and mocked and teased and if they want to go do that in the bedroom with their lover at home no one's going to care but when they're out in public doing that at a high school that's when social pressure should be applied and we're not letting people apply social pressure we're saying you're a bad person if you make anyone feel bad which puts all the power on the craziest people in the community because the craziest people will feel bad for the slightest thing absolutely um you know the one thing i have to say about that teacher in canada is um i think james is totally right it's like the autogynophilia but there's this other aspect here that like the second i first saw that picture is all i could really think about is um there's like kind of a creepy subgenre in anime where it's you know a school student a boy that has the hots for his teacher and the teacher almost always has just an enormous chest and so it's like i feel like there's a there's something else going on there like i think that person is hoping that entices one of her hit their students i don't, <laughs> I don't even know where to go here but um so what's this anime I need to. <laughs> it's like what you know but i'm like i i've seen that like thing in cartoons and now it's in a this is a middle school right those are middle school i think it's a high school I, I, high i'm school? not sure i think it's a high school though it says high school here okay it's, it's high school wild to me that anyone can defend that as in any way appropriate now you want to wear those under a big chunky sweater it's still inappropriate, but it's not nearly as, I mean, just obscene as what this person is coming and teaching by the pictures, mostly boys yeah. to do, you know, shop work. Like, it's just, I, I can't understand how, as a society, as civilization, we have allowed ourselves to just veer so 
far off track straight towards the cliff because this goes nowhere good for anybody for the the kids that are growing up into this world for the people like us that see it as a problem and want to be able to voice our opinions on it i mean it's just mind-boggling to me it is mind-boggling it's it's interesting too that you said um about the bullying because I, we've done, we've sort of been trying to trace one of the research groups I work with. We're trying to trace how this entered Canada exactly, like what what was the sort of policy pathway and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of the gender ideology stuff came in through anti-bullying policy, right? Because if someone is a homosexual, that's that would be a way to say, okay, well, we don't bully that kid. So it 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 didn't. It hid under anti-bullying instead of trying to come in the schools as sexual education. It kind of circumvented that. So that's kind of one way it sort of got in. Um, and it's that's um, more of the case out west in Canada. We have something called SOGI, sexual orientation, gender identity, and it's it's crazy. It's totally radical gender theory. But the origins of that it did enter the school system via sort of an anti-bullying program. Yeah, that, that, that the word whenever you hear someone complaining about harm um, or or that kind of thing, it's it's coded language for I'm going to I'm, I'm here to tear down. I'm here to queer this thing. Right. Because what it is, is they like I was saying, as you were dropping off, actually, it's like they they uh, they 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 want to place the way to, to roll out your postmodernist subjectivism is to say harm is whatever the person perceives as harm yes and and but it is universally bad to be harmful which is an odd thing um and so and that's you see the same thing in social media companies right twitter uses that word in their terms of service because harm is so vague it's so nebulous was was I harmed when someone someone misgendered me or they they dead named me? Was I harmed? I I don't know. I like it might make them feel bad for a moment, and that's enough, right? And so, uh, I I really one of the things that bothers me most about this ideology is that it exploits the well-meaning intentions of people who are like, well, I don't want to hurt people's feelings, mm-hmm. especially Canadians. I don't want I'm a nice Canadian. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I don't want to like create conflict. So I don't want to harm this person. And uh and that's the wedge that they'll later drive a tank through. Yeah. The whole uh impact over intent. That's that's the sort of idea here. It doesn't matter what your intentions were, it matters what the impact was. So that's a terrifying idea because you it doesn't matter what you say or what you intended, if someone decides that you caused harm, and again, they, they, they are, are equating harm, hurt feelings with actual physical harm, it's to them, there's no different, they, they don't distinguish. But if as is, is, is long as they say that you caused harm, you're guilty of causing harm, regardless of what your actions were, or what your intent was, it's all about the impact and on the impact of the person that received the harm. So basically, you're just giving anyone power over you, especially if you're not a persecuted or an oppressed identity, which I'm not. I'm a white guy, cisgendered white guy. So I'm like the I'm, I'm the enemy number one. So really, it's dangerous to be me. To walk around anywhere, anyone could just say that that person harmed me 
because of something I said or whatever. And regardless of what my intent was, it's all in, in their, their lived truth, their, their relative experience. And they have that power over me, but it's said that I'm the one that's privileged in society where mm, I don't know, maybe there well, wasn't. I want to, I want to <laughs> point out what the, what that sort of gamification of social interactions results in the winner of that game is the most hypersensitive bully. That's the winner of the game. Yeah. Cry bully. Yep. Which is what we're seeing. I mean, they, they are winning. Um, yeah. I, which which leads me to uh, a comment on the left's authoritarianism, which it gets back to Elliot, your story about um, the Orthodox school. There's there's this. On the one hand, I can be fine with this idea of, well, you want to have some craziness and teach kids some crazy things in your own school. Like, I'm not going to send my kid there. That's fine. But if you'll notice, the modern left has gone from. Uh, the ACLU literally defending the right of Nazis to march, even though their views were abhorrent, um, to you running your own private school can't reject our trans agenda. You must, you must acquiesce to it. And if you don't, we're going to come down on you. Right. And again, from the latest things that I know, it seems like the Syrian Jewish school did actually fire the teacher. And they're a little bit more old-fashioned, thank God. The Syrians, they're not as, they don't, they're not as plagued by, because also they're from Arab countries, so they don't have the Western guilt as much as maybe the mm. you know, European Jews do. Um, but um, Yeshiva University is having their own problem. They have tried to bend over backwards, I think incorrectly and wrongly, but they've tried to accommodate these people as far as they can, can but then ultimately these, they asked for a, a gay club, they said, we're sorry, we can't give you one. And then they sued them um, because they do want to force their values down our throats. It's not enough for them to have their own values. And um, didn't the university get rid of all clubs after that? <laughs> they did for now. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. But I mean, it's, it's like it's a super clear cut issue. And I mean, I, you know, you also believe in that. But I mean, from a Jewish perspective, it's not even up for debate. I mean, just kind of like a clear verse in the Bible. It's not like. It's not like, you know, ambiguous verse and some people can interpret it one way and other people can interpret it a different way. It's kind of clear cut. But, you know, but I, I see even why use public statements when they have to talk about this, this issue. They're always bending over backwards because they're so scared of being sued or so scared of not being politically correct. Because for a long time, especially modern orthodoxy, Yeshiva University is kind of like the flagship institution for modern orthodoxy. And their sort of motto was always like, you know, we're orthodox, but we're also part of the general world. And we're proud that we could do both. We're not, we're not insulated like the ones who wear the black hats. We're more part of the world, and they're having sort of a crisis now because the whole world is becoming much more immoral. And they don't kind of, they don't, you know. I went, I went to the, to the school also, and they always have like debates, you know, like, well, our parents and grandparents watch movies all the time, so why are you saying we can't watch movies today? And it's like, well, the movies your grandparents watched were a little bit different than the movies are today. Like, culture has shifted to a very great degree to the left, and it's much more degenerate than it was two or three mm -hmm. generations ago. And modern orthodoxy is having a problem because they really want to be part of the culture, and yet the culture is going so far to the left um, and off the rails, really. So it's kind of like a crisis in that community. Well, the culture has turned explicitly hostile, I think, to anyone who doesn't bow to their um, their proclamations uh, of of truth, which are changing every day, almost. Right. Yeah, so I mean, if you're not if you're not bending the knee constantly, you're their enemy. And so uh, Yeshiva is going to be the enemy and there's nothing they can do about that because the, the left has gone from living and let, letting live to 
shoving it down your throats. Right. Except standing tall. I think they should stand tall. And I think I think there's still enough normal normal people in this country that they could, they could win not just the public relations war, but they could win even the legal war. Because I don't think most mainstream Americans, even most mainstream Democrats, really think it's correct to shove this LGBT agenda down the throats of an Orthodox Jewish community or an Orthodox Jewish school. But I mean, that is what the you know far left wants. They do it in Israel also. They insist on having gay parades in Jerusalem. Now, they would never insist on having a gay parade in Mecca because they know what would happen if they had one in Mecca. Because <laughs> the Arabs mean business. They do. But, you know, but they have one in Jerusalem. And um, that, they, have, they, they have no, honestly, they have no respect. Forget everything else. Just respect. When I'm in a group of leftists, I'm, I rarely am. But if I were, I wouldn't speak about Trump in that group because I know they all hate Trump. I'm among liberals right now. I'll keep quiet. There's no reason to upset everybody. So these people often, they'll, they don't, but they don't have basic respect. They'll go into an Orthodox community, they'll go into a religious community and say, here's what we're, we're, what we're doing. We dare you to stop us. Yeah, it's not nice. Yeah. Basic decency. I don't know, I don't know if Yeshiva uh, receives government funding, but I'll say a general problem that, um, you know, it's just, this is one of these things that if you said this years ago, people were like, oh, what's the worst that can happen? But you said, look, when you take government funding, you eventually will be subject to government rules. And maybe at the time it doesn't seem like a big deal, but we've now had most of our major institutions, including almost the entire federal government, captured by crazy leftists. So those are the rules that are getting ruled, uh, rolled out. And they, they, they claim to have power based on the fact that you're taking their money. And of course, they've, often they've created an environment in which you kind of have to take their money because they've destroyed a lot of things around you like they've made it so that you're kind of dependent which is intentional but dependence means you have to obey obey dependence dependence comes with obedience right i agree with you it, it is a huge problem um i don't think it's as big of a problem as some people think i mean maybe i'm just being a teeny bit naive but i mean once upon a time they had what were they called single single townhouse schools where you know all the kids were just in one little room I, I, I would venture to guess that the education 200 years ago when they had that system was better than the education today when they have these buildings which, you know, are three stories high and every single modern technological you know, gadget you could hope for. So, you know, without the money, they would suffer, but I don't think they would have to close. I think they could do just fine. You might have to get rid of some of the, some of the gadgets. You might have to go a little bit old school, but I think you'll be fine. Yeah, you're probably right. If you read, like, old letters from the Civil War, from people yeah. who just like graduated eighth grade and that's it uh it, it'll kind of blow you away like they mm -hmm. they certainly had a command of the english language and understanding of the classics that you know high schoolers don't have now yes yes oh, yeah. every once in a while on the internet i think they circulate these tests from 100 years ago or so or even older what an average eighth grader was expected to know and what they know today it's uh it's really a joke <laughs> wow. it is well, is there any uh, any other stories that that we should be talking about from either one of you that we think uh, you guys think we should be paying attention to that we're not? Go ahead, Elliot. No, I don't have anything off the top of my head. Maybe if you say something, something will occur to me. <laughs> uh, hmm. Thank. You. That's right. I just wanted to before we wrapped it up. I want to make sure you guys got anything uh, off of your chests that you wanted to to chat about today. Well, here's um, I am going to ask you. Uh, I am going to ask you a quick question because it's just something I want to. I want to chat with people about. Um, 
What's your take on the Ron DeSantis sending people, sending immigrants to Martha's Vineyard? That's for me or for James? Whoever Go wants ahead. to answer first. <laughs> <Me> first. <laughs> okay. I think it's wonderful. And I, think we, I think we need a lot more of that also. I think so much of what we do is a reaction to the left. We're always complaining and reacting. And what we often say, why is the left doing that? Why is the left doing this? And it's interesting from a philosophical level, you know, what motivates them, what motivates their psyche. It is all fascinating. At the end of the day, though, I think if we, need to, if we want to save our civilization, we have to stop reacting and start building, you know, going back to the earlier discussion also, doing our own thing, thinking, okay, what do we need to do to make sure our civilization survives and thrives? And I think people like DeSantis, I think Trump sort of broke through the ice and showed people you, you could do this. It's okay. You don't have to be so scared of the yeah. media. You could do, say what you think and do what you want, and people will love you for it, actually, even. So I think he sort of opened the door, and DeSantis is doing it, and some other people are doing it. I think we need much more of that, where we don't just re react all the time. We start doing things first and thinking of, of interesting ideas to do, to build. And I, I think it's a brilliant PR move, honestly. I mean, not just even PR move, a great practical move. I mean, I know uh, Lake from Arizona said, and it's a decent point. She said, look, they're illegals. Why are we shipping them anywhere? We should, just, we should ship them back to Mexico or wherever they come from, you know, Honduras. I get that point, but you know that that's that is a long-term answer. The short-term answer is we need to do things like like DeSantis did, put it on their front doorstep, and say, "Well, you've been asking for this. Now you have it." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he wasn't allowed to send them back to like he doesn't have the authority to send them yeah, to Mexico, no. but he can send them to Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. And wasn't it? Uh, I didn't follow it too closely, but wasn't Martha's vi Vineyard actually like a? It's a sanctuary part of sanctuary state right yes whereas yes. florida is not mm -hmm. so right. they completely follow the rules so that to me that's so brilliant um yeah and like i, I can't i can't i just don't see the the rationale that this was cruel to the people because you sent them to a like a really rich place well what i what i found like one of the late night uh who was it somebody was making fun of it or might, might have been social media where when the people got to the uh shelter they were given like Rice Krispies to eat or something, something really foul like that. It's like, really, that's the best Martha, Martha's Vineyard could do. Like they were given like not good food. I mean, it was good that they had food. It was like there was a lot of it there, but it was like Rice Krispies or something, something like that, you know. So I don't well, know. Well, they were the Martha's Vineyard people were complaining that they they didn't know ahead of time that they were coming. And I thought to myself, I think that's what it's like to be on a border. Like, I don't I don't think, you know, ahead of time, yeah. right? Yeah, you have people streaming across the border like thousands at a time. They're they're not they're not giving like RSVP for this. Of course, <laughs> and the left has like no self awareness. Like you would think, one of the, some of them would say, you know what, you got me. You're right. You're, you're, you're no. clever. I have to rethink my position. No, nothing like that whatsoever. No self awareness. No, it's unbelievable. No, they they won't yeah. admit the wrong ever. They, they prefer just to let time go by and then they kind of talk about other things and distract and then move on to other things. But then there's never going back to correct the record. There's never going back to say that, oh, these policies, these initiatives that we spent millions of dollars on, they didn't work. At, at, by the time we know that they don't work, it's years later, it's different politicians now. I'm paraphrasing Thomas Sowell. He, he, this is his ideas, but he's he's right about this. Like there's kind of kind of the, the way it goes until we figure out a way to have more accountability you know this government had had these ideas anti-racism whatever but we're going to do it okay let's measure it then 
and then every six months, every year, is it working? Is it not working? But we kind of don't do that. We just the, le the left just wants to do things that make them feel good about themselves, and then they never sort of check in to see if those things actually made things worse, which in a lot of cases they do. And I think that they'll tell you that it was a success. Sorry. They'll tell you that it was a success, even if it was a failure. <laughs> like no matter what, you know what I mean? They're never wrong and everything's a success and they're on the right side of the equation morally. Of history. Of history, yeah. This is why they can, they just write off people from the right. I mean, one of the most alarming things too is like universities. Again, I always look, look where, where the knowledge is being produced because that's kind of where we, how we make sense of things, right? But the universities are like 92% left leaning, leaning professors and like 8% right-leaning that's all across western democracies that's not just canada mm -hmm. and you know you, you, like i i don't subscribe to like disparity fallacy i don't expect it to be equal but that's a big disparity you know and uh there's lots of studies uh, we have a political scientist named eric hoffman who's looked at this um both university professors and students in universities who are right-leaning will often um like falsify their prefer preferences. They won't admit that they're conservative because they will be discriminated against. So this is like, we're, again, we're, the story is told that like, you know, the, the Islamic person or the black person is, um, or the trans person is the, the oppressed person, the, the oppressed identity that, that's gonna be, you know, sub subject to discrimination or bigotry at school. But really it's like a white guy, for example, or a white, a white girl who's Christian and conservative and maybe is an advocate for the police and maybe shows up to school in a pickup truck. That's the person that's gonna be discriminated against the most in an academic setting where everyone's leftist and snobby and yeah. It's very, they're, they're against tradition. They're, they're cosmopolitan and they're, they, they just revile in anything traditional. When I was at, in college, I asked my philosophy professor who actually was conservative, which was a miracle, but I asked him about you know the disparity among professors and he said, which made a lot of sense to me, he said, if you have a conservative head of department, which is rare, but if you do have one, he will hire a liberal because he's normal and nice and fair. You'll hire you know, some of both. He said, if you have a left-wing liberal head of a department, you will never hire a conservative. So over time, you, only, you, get, to, you get this 92 to 8% disparity. Mm -hmm. But going back to your earlier point about admitting that you're wrong, I think that was the main problem with COVID also. If they had just said in the beginning, look, we two weeks to flatten the curve, two weeks have passed, if they had just said, look, we said two weeks, we know it was very hard for you, we apologize, we didn't realize how bad it is, we actually need to extend it for a few more weeks, we're sorry. It was still wrong if they had, if they had adopted that tone of voice, people would have gone along with them. But there was none of that. There was just pretending like they had never said anything. <laughs> so they move on to the next thing as if they were not wrong about the first thing. And then that's where you lose all the trust. If people can't admit and speak to you normally and admit that they were wrong, then you lose all trust very quickly. I think that's why it's really important what everyone is doing here. You guys uh, with um, un Unsafe Space and and your work too, Elliot, I, I, although I don't really know you, but I'm meeting you today. But it's the fact that it's independent researchers, independent journalists, the media has really failed. Like it's pretty bad in the States, I can see that, but in Canada, it's awful. We, 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 we don't have media that know how to do research or how to ask questions and challenge assertions of activists. They don't know how to do investigative journalism. And that's a problem, you know, like we, we can't just blame the public if they're if they're not being informed correctly, if, if activists are not or in, investigative journalists are not asking tough questions, 
you know, about the assertions of queer theory or trans activism or unmarked graves. If we don't challenge these things, if we just like in Canada, it just seems like journalists just stick the microphone in front of anybody and just, okay, say whatever. <laughs> and then they move on. It's like, it's the, they never like, Oh, really? Could we, could we maybe do some research into what you just said? Or can we challenge it? Can we, could you, could you corroborate that some, can you substantiate that? There's none of that, especially if it's an activist An activist is looked at as like someone who's giving service to humanity. They would never lie. They would never misrepresent. So we just stick a microphone, a camera in front of their face, and we amplify their message. Yeah, it's it's definitely that way in the states, and it's it's. Um, the move. Mike Cernovich had a movie called Hoaxed, which I think was ripped off of Amazon uh, at some point, so it's not even up anymore. But one of the one of the things I like about it is he there's a there's a point in the in the movie in which he's talking to I forget the guy's name Scott someone I think he's a 60 minutes reporter and he's talking about uh hillary clinton and i think at the time uh hillary's campaign she was like something was wrong she had like fallen downstairs or dropped even stuff or whatever and yeah, people were asking questions that. about her health and and cernovich said well uh you know they were talking and and the, and the guy said to cernovich well she just has uh, pneumonia or whatever she has pneumonia and he said well how do you know and he said, well, we asked her campaign. And he was like, well, that's my point. That's all, the only work you did was ask her campaign. Like, that's the point, right? Um, yeah. And they, they don't do it for political enemies, of course. Um, but they, for anyone who's an ally, uh, and I mean that in the full way that they mean it, uh, anyone who's an ally gets just a free pass. And so reporting on any government program that that the left foists upon us is literally stick a microphone in front of the spokesperson's face and then report it as if it's 100% fact. Um, and as you were saying, if there's been failure, the questions, like they never ask the question of whether it should be shut down. No one does that. The left, you know, NPR will never do an analysis of like, is the war on poverty really working? And let's take a look at the numbers, right? They will, it will be, we need to double down. We've exactly. done this much so far, and it hasn't worked, so we need to double what we're doing, because that will definitely not work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, well, uh, James and Elliot, thank you so much for joining today. Can you, uh, James, remind everyone where they can find you online, how they can follow your work? Uh, sure. I, I, I get published a little bit with the Western Standard in Canada, True North, uh, the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And my own uh, substack is actually, this is the part of the pushback of all the parents. We have teachers writing anonymously about their uh, uh, instances of wokeism in the schools um, and sometimes principals and other parents and then people like myself writing investigative op-eds and stuff like that. That's Woke Watch Canada. That's a substack. So wokewatchcanada.substack.com. Then my own substack is just jamespew.substack.com. That's called The Turn. Awesome. And Elliot, how can people follow your work and find you online? So probably the easiest is just to Google the Elliot Resnick show. And I think people will particularly perhaps like my two of my last episodes. One's called Cancelled by Ben Shapiro. So there's an interview with Denise McAllister. And another one was called Martin Luther King, a, so a societal stalker, question mark. That's with Vince Ellison. It's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> there's an interview with a black person, actually. He wrote a book called 25 Lies. His argument is that he preferred that if a white doesn't let you into the school, you open a school right next door and make it 10 times better. 
rather, rather than what he calls stalking the white school. It was an interesting argument. So I just I heard him interviewed elsewhere, and I decided to interview him also. So I think people will like those. Before I go, I also want to mention very quickly, do you know that in the corner of your screen you have an OU symbol? Now, I don't know what, why you have it here, but in, in Jewish circles, OU is the most common kosher symbol. If you go to the supermarket and you're looking for kosher food, that's the most common kosher symbol. So you have kosher, yes. <laughs> so, and this is a kosher broadcast just for you, Elliot. <laughs> for everybody. So I just wanted to point that out. You have the Orthodox Jewish stamp of, of approval. Awesome. I, well, <laughs> thank you both for joining. Um, Juliet, are we forgetting anything else? Is there anything else we need to say? Um, uh, the rest of the shows this week that are happening will be here. So we'll be back to normal next week. I yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, oops. Sorry. I muted myself. Thanks, everyone, for watching. And uh, we will see you next time. Guys, I hope to have both of you back sometime. Appreciate Thank it. Thanks, so guys. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>